If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Now, Paul, you're not living anywhere near all these fires in Alberta, are you? They're north and you're south? Yeah, I'm south. I'm just a little bit north of Lethbridge right now, and most of the fires are sort of Edmonton north, so... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, and then we've had, getting... like, I guess when I was gone, they've had some rain all week, so... We're not too bad in terms of dry now. Yeah, I just uh, been following it along there, and <clears throat> so the military I think has moved like four hundred people to to help with with stuff there. So yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, I I've always been like a fire guy. Like I really understand the relationship between habitat and and fire, and you know how it can improve you know, forage quality and, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so <clears throat> generally when there's fires, it's kind of like, you know, oh, gee, you know, oh, fire, that's so bad. You know, it's like, kind of like, and, and we're all, we're the ones in the wildlife section that are cheering. It's like, go, go, go all the way up the mountain, go right to the rocks. Uh, but sometimes they get going and they're, <clears throat> they're around people's homes and cities and stuff like that. And that's, that's the complete opposite. Like, that's just not not a good situation and and um yeah i think there's been some homes lost in alberta um already uh, from yeah. the fires and thousands of people have been evacuated so yeah we have family friends in that uh in grand prairie area and they've lost their acreage the fire went through oh their acreage so <clears throat> yeah yeah i just found that wow out. wow so, like yeah it's like home too as far as i know yeah that they, oh my goodness that they went through their acreage so Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's not good. No, no. Like I said, it's, it's great for wildlife at times, but then there's that human element that always comes into play. Right. Yeah. 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 You want, yeah. you want the wildlife stuff to be timed and controlled and it's been thought out and planned out and people are on top of the fire weather and you know, the predictions and stuff and they can, you know, they can generally keep it under control except for the one in Banff got away from them. So Mm -hmm. That one's okay. I'm like, yeah, no, the park could probably use some more fires in the Bow Valley there. So, yeah, but, uh, no, that's good. Good that you're safe, uh, down in the Lethbridge area. So that's, um, that's good. Hey everybody. It's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, B.C., Get ready to experience a different kind of car dealership with Alpine Toyota. Their team of experienced professionals is dedicated to providing the best possible customer service. Plus, they're proud to give back to the community and conservation with support of organizations like Ducks Unlimited Canada and us here at the Hunter Conservationist. As always, we are very grateful for the folks down at Alpine for their continued support of what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist. So thank you, Alpine. Now, 
sticking with our theme of developing um, Toyota trucks that have a full <clears throat> decal wrap based on the theme of our podcast, we keep proposing <clears throat> um, Toyota have these these um, like completely themed out you know trucks. And when um, your um, colleague Doug Manzer, when he was on the show and we were talking about Upland Game Birds, we were talking about oh we could have like a you know all the different Upland Game Bird species, and the whole truck would you know look like a like an Upland Game Bird, call it the Upland Edition and stuff. So this 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 one would be definitely I, I can envision like a, a herd of running pronghorn, you know, like like sort of you know that wavy motion wrap the whole entire toyota truck and that that'd be pretty cool yeah and then would you have to drive it like really fast yes you know because like prong yeah, corner the get... second fastest land mammal yeah you would super, be able you would be exempt. Uh-huh. you would be exempt <laughs> from the speed limits yes yeah um you would be allowed to go cross country and under fences as well that would be in in the in that pronghorn addition you would be allowed to do that as well and mm-hmm. um the only caveat would be is um a person should be careful driving on the country roads in alberta during hunting season if you have the, the pronghorn <laughs> addition <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah you don't want to be out there opening day no for sure yeah not parked anyways <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> yeah my new truck's full of holes uh, Paul, welcome to the podcast. First time on. Really appreciate you coming on. No, oh, glad to be here. Looking forward uh, to Paul it. Paul Jones, uh, you're a senior biologist with the Alberta Conservation Association. Yeah, yeah. Based that- out of Lethbridge, been with the organization 25 years now. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Just celebrated <clears throat> is, it in April. That is fantastic. Yeah. Wow. That's that's uh. You you must be almost like from the beginning. I've missed the first year. Yeah. I started oh, the really? Second wow. year. Okay. Yeah. No way. I missed the oh, first cool. year. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the last 20 years or so, a lot of my work plans focused on pronghorn. Oh, wow. This, this is going to be, this is going to be great. Um, you know, of course we don't have pronghorn in British Columbia, but I understand that they were here at one time. Hmm. They're See, apparently, I've never read... Yeah, I was gonna say I've no, never, never read, read that. that. I've only heard Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and then they stopped at the Rockies. Okay, mm. and see, I <clears throat> I'd done some work with some archaeologists here in the Rocky Mountain Trench area, and if I remember right, I think I remember saying they have both. They have confirmed um, bison. Uh, I was mm. with one when we found a bison bone one time, a, a chunk of a femur bone. Um, and antelope were known to be in the southern part of BC because I guess at one time, just climatically, um, the the true sagebrush ecosystem that's south of us in the U.S. actually came up into the Rocky mm. Mountain Trench and and it subsided, and we have more of the of the the bunch grass and the uh, the antelope brush. Uh, but not not the true sagebrush. There's a bit of the true sagebrush ecosystem in the Okanagan. So, um, I, yeah, I, I had just remember hearing from the archaeologists that I think that they had found found traces of antelope bones. They could have been brought in too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they were hunted here, but that would be be pretty cool to think back that 
they might have they might have been here at one time for a short period of time along with some bison yeah yeah no for sure yeah i'm gonna have to look into that now yeah that's yeah well i mean <clears throat> i guess it, it depends on how far you go back you go back into the you know the pleistocene or whatever then there was like stuff all over the place woolly rhinos <laughs> and whatnot yeah. so yeah it brings up the whole question of like what's a native species and what's not <laughs> so. right yeah so for pronghorn like they sort of showed up in north america around the mycocene era i believe and then there was different members of the same <clears throat> family and then in the last ice age mostly all the other members died off and it just left the current form of pronghorn okay yeah yeah and then it was also at the same time the north american cheetah died out as well okay okay wow so the the pronghorn that exists today is that sort of the like the original species that would have been in the in the prehistoric time it was or one of the it... original species okay. in the prehistoric time and it's the only one that survived the last ice age so basically they're endemic to north american they're not an old world species that migrated over yeah. and they're the only member of their family that exists so a lot of people think of pronghorn that, you know, they look like deer a little bit, so they must be related to deer, but they're completely separate. Their actually closest genetic relative is the giraffe. So if you, oh, if you no think way. about it, yeah, pull up an image, put an image side by side of a giraffe and a pronghorn headshot and just have a look at how kind of similar they are. Oh, isn't that interesting? <clears throat> I, I would have, if you would have posed that as a million dollar question, I would have said goats. Right. Well, because that's, oh. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the their name is Antelocapra americana, which sort of stands for intermediate between goat and uh, sheep, uh, goat, sorry, of North America, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Giraffe. Yeah. Huh. I w never never would have guessed. No. Um, yeah, that's, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's exciting. Yeah, <clears throat> so it's got a bunch of nicknames, and one of them is the speed goat. The speed goat, yeah, I've heard yeah, that I've heard, one. Yeah, I've heard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or the prairie ghost. And, oh, okay, no, I haven't heard mm -hmm. that one. Yeah, yeah. So they gets I that think... nickname because it can pile erect the white hair on its rump, so it flares out really white, um, and that's an anti-predator defense. But they have such good eye vision that they usually see you before you see them, and then sort of when you see them is you see the white rump patch, the nice flared white as it's going over a hill. And then it kind of got the nickname Prairie Ghost as they disappeared out oh, of your okay. sight. Okay. Uh -huh. So is there, is there coloration um, and, and their pattern? So, so correct me if I'm wrong. So they're, you know, they're, they're that, that tawny orange color with the white and a, and a bit of, bit of dark striping on them. Now I'm to understand that the ungulates that have, um, like the more vibrant colors like the elk were because they were herd animals and also open animals. They needed more like a little brighter colors and, and patterns and stuff for visibility or camouflage, I guess in open prairie environments or whether that was a, a breeding thing. But it, it also seems to me that they were connected to you know, to large herd animals, gregarious. Why the moose is just sort of like all one color because it's mm -hmm. usually just two or three, you know, moose together, not like 40 of them in a, in a group. Is that, does that kind of ring true for, for pronghorn? 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, their tan color sort of helps them blend in nicely with the prairies, right? When you, you know, you get your green grass during the spring, but as the summer goes on, you know, it burns off and becomes almost like a tan color as well. So it helps blend into there. And then their pattern helps when, let's say if a coyote's chasing them and they're running in their herd and they're weaving in and out, it's, it's then it's harder for the coyote, I think, to, to pick up on which individual it wants to keep on the path when it's chasing. Oh, Because they're definitely, you know, for most of the time, they're definitely a herd animal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had read that groups. about zebras. Mm-hmm. That they that was kind of the leading theory now is the stripes um in a herd when they're running and weaving around really disorientates the predators and being able to kind of like zero in and focus on a specific animal. It's kinda of like everything's just all like ooh, kind of weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> weird in front of them. So oh that's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can get the pronghorn to like run in straight line one after the other, but a lot of times they'll do some weaving. And then, you know, when they stop and turn, they'll kind of intermingle. And I think it's, yeah, just to throw predators off. Wow. So the, the coyote probably in wolves would have been the main or the only predators of pronghorn, or I guess grizzlies would have been at one time too. And the grizzlies were on, on the plains. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. But for the most part, they can out, the modern pronghorn can outrun any modern predator. Right. Whether it's, you know, a wolf or a grizzly bear or a coyote. When they get to adult, they can pretty much outrun them. Even, you know, golden eagles will predate on them at one, at one point. Um, but for the most part, yeah, they can outrun any of the, uh, the predators. And it just goes back to their history of when North America had the North American cheetah. That's why they developed that speed. Right, to outrun the North American cheetah. And then, like oh, I was okay. mentioning, last ice age, North American cheetah disappeared, but our pronghorn stayed and kept that speed. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, there's a kind of a really neat book. It's called um, Ghosts of Predator Past. Okay. And it's about, yeah, the North American cheetah and its relationship with pronghorn. Yeah, yeah. In um, in Jose Ortega Igase's book, um, meditations on hunting he he's got a like this isn't the exact quote but he said for every for every tactic that the predator developed the prey through evolution developed a counter tactic which is why the prey um foresee and more often than not escape their hunter and mm-hmm. so here we have the pronghorn, which is exactly that scenario evolved to outwit a tactic that its predator had, which was speed. So, yeah, yeah, they they won. True. I uh, I just listened to a uh, Joe Rogan podcast with um, the author Dan Flores, who wrote uh, Serengeti America. Um, he wrote the coyote one about the America. coyote. Yeah, Coyote America. Um, and he was talking about the same thing. Um, he had had a little bit about pronghorns and he said that they still, even though the, they don't have the, um, American cheetah as their main predator, they still sexually select for the fastest. Um, Hmm. so that, that is still continuing to go on, even though they haven't had that, that stressor for however long the cheetah has been gone they're still still selecting for that 
trait. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And then did he mention how they select for that trait? No. No? So one of the interesting things with pronghorn is that the female kind of decides who she's going to breed with. So if you have a buck that has a bunch of females all herded up during the breeding season, what the female will do is she will actually take off running as fast as she can away from the buck. And she's testing that buck to see if he can actually catch up to her and turn her around and drive her back to the herd. And if he can't, mm. she'll actually leave the herd and go find another male. Wow. Huh. So, yeah. Yeah, so I can see how it is, like sexual selection so, for faster males, so faster offspring. So if she, if he can catch her, <clears throat> then she's like, you're no good. No, if he can catch her and turn her around back to the herd, then she'll likely breed with that male. Okay, but okay. He, yeah, but if he's not fast enough and she can get away, she'll leave and find another male. Yeah, okay, okay, him. if, if, if wow. he can't. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Huh. Now, if that were if that were people, like one of them would just like yell, you know, like run, danger. <laughs> somebody, yeah. somebody, there's a gun. <laughs> and it was like, and then they sit back and see who can bear <laughs> and see who can run the fastest. Huh. So that's, um, yeah, that's, that just kind of goes to show you like how deeply embedded like those genetic traits are that, you know, when they talk about evolution, like it's not in like decades or hundreds of years, it's in multiples of tens of thousands to see the changes. Mm -hmm. So, so, so how long would it have been since the cheetah would have been, been gone? That would have been probably over 10,000 ish years. Cause it's been 11,000 since the last glacier. Right. So, yeah. Let me see. I want to say it's been Pleistocene, which is like a million years ago. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I was, I was off by an order of <laughs> two orders yeah. of magnitude, 10,000 to a million. Um, okay. So Yeah, it was so like one million go. years ago during the Pleistocene is when the last ice sheets and glaciers moved south. And that's when the rest of the members died off of the pronghorn okay. family. Wow. So yeah. after a million years, they're still genetically evolutionary wise acting what they needed to do a million years ago. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So Canada has uh pronghorn in uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and are they in Southern Manitoba? Technically no, they've been extirpated. Okay. From Manitoba. Okay. But every once in a while, like I think like in 2007, I did an interview with CB, I think it was CBC, um, because a farmer in the southern part of the province saw a pronghorn doe and a pronghorn buck in, okay. in the province. And likely what it is, is we had good numbers south of the border in North Dakota. And it was likely a couple of two animals that sort of moved up and explored it. And then I haven't heard anything since. Okay. So, so for the so most part, it's just Alberta and Saskatchewan now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, where is their present distribution in Alberta and what was their historic range? Like, let's see, let's sort of just sort of maybe like pre-European contact. What, what do we know where, where they were in Alberta and where, the, where they are today? Well, so for Alberta, it would definitely be from Saskatchewan border 
over to sort of the Montane when you're starting to get into the Rockies, and then up north all the way to Edmonton or north. That's so right to the fringe the of the boreal. Yeah, the fringe of the boreal forest. Okay. Yeah, but grasslands used to extend all the way up to Edmonton. It's just yep. our fire suppression has now allowed Aspen Parkland to sort of creep south. Now it depends what you call about current distribution. I hear stories of a small herd of pronghorn that's supposed to be around the Edmonton International Airport, and even one a little bit north of Edmonton near Fort Saskatchewan. Hmm. But it's like you know half a dozen animals. So is that true distribution, or do you look more at where the the key animal, like the big population, is where the larger groups are? So where where's the where's the line, kind of the leading edge of the you know, the, the bulk of the population known. I would the... say the bulk of the population would be kind of like that Brooks consort area south to the Montana border. Okay. So pretty, pretty narrow little strip and uh, along the Southern, Southern yeah. edge of Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Just look at the grasslands. Okay. Now that being said, I did an interview with CBC uh, in March because there's a prong, there was a pronghorn living in the city of Calgary. Oh, geez. Yeah, it showed up huh. twice, once in November and then once again, and it disappeared all winter and then came back in, in March. Really? And I attributed to that. Is, so the last five years or so, I always get an email through our info line about someone driving between Calgary and Airdrie on the west side of Highway 2, seeing a small group of pronghorn in the agricultural area. So, so at some point, the small groups got across Highway 2 and has been making a living living in the cropland west of Highway 2 between Calgary and Airdrie. So I think what happened this winter is we had heavy snowfall in November. This animal either, you know, became separated from its herd or the other members went somewhere else or it died. And she just moved south into Calgary to try to get away from the snow. And she was in, I think it's uh, Nose Creek Park. Um, so it's kind of got some good terrain there for getting out of the snow. Lots of shrubs there for her to forage on. And then when the snow sort of sort of dis slowed down, dissipated a little bit. She moved back north, I'm guessing. And then we had that early snow in March and pushed her south again into the same park. Oh, wow. Huh. Well, I I hope they don't build up a urban population because like my experience here in BC is, you know, with the urban deer or urban geese, it's kind of like everybody loves wildlife and then there's this tipping point where there's too many of them in town and they're eating too many of their of their uh, garden plants and stuff. And then everybody turns on them and then they hate them. And, um, and, and then you get stuff like then people get pellet guns and crossbows and they try to take matters into their own hands and stuff. So for the, for the sake of the pronghorn, I hope like they never become an urban, an yeah. urban uh, species like the deer have in, in some communities. That would be... Not good for them. No, no. And I don't I don't see it. I think, I, I bet you she's not even there anymore, that she's mo moved north again. Moved on. Huh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Now, in in their core range right now in Alberta, how how is their populations doing? So they must, um, are, are they very vulnerable to certain types of winters, um, you know, and the, and the ups and downs? Mm -hmm. Maybe describe a little bit of, you know, kind of where we're at right now, population-wise, what some of the ups and downs have been and what the drivers are of those population cycles. 
Yeah, so certainly for pronghorn, the major, major driver is going to be your winter weather. So when we have those severe weather winter events, um, it really hammers our pronghorn. Like we can lose 30, 40, 50% of our population during severe winters. Um, so in severe winters, is that is that snow depth or temperature? Uh, more snow snow depth, right? Okay. So they're tradition historically they would have been with the bison and the buffalo during the winter times, right? Let them do the the heavy moving of the snow, and then they would come in afterwards and forage in those patches, because their legs are very small, so they're not the great. They don't paw through snow great. So if you get lots of snow, and if you, especially if you get crusting on the snow, they mm-hmm. can't paw through to get through to the vegetation. So what we'll see is a lot of times when these events happen is these animals will try and make what we call facultative migrations. So they'll try to move south to get away from this snow events. And then that's where you sort of run into potential issues with running in the fences, where one time they could crawl underneath that fence, but now you've got two feet of snow and that fence becomes a barrier and they just basically get trapped in areas that are inhospitable. And eventually they just die of either malnutrition or predation. Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, so where, where are they, where would they be right now in, in your estimation of kind of like the ebb and flow of ups and downs of populations? Yeah, I think they should be more towards the upper end in their population. I mean, we did have a couple of winter goes a nasty snow event in November that really hit the population hard that winter kind of thing. But I think they should be slowly recovering now. Okay. I mean, and typically, you know, a good population for Alberta is anywhere from 16, 18,000 into the low 20s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we hit a peak, and I think it was 1984, of around 32,000 pronghorn in Alberta. Holy. Yeah. Yeah. Give, and they've seen similar numbers. <laughs> yeah. Similar uh, numbers in Saskatchewan. Like they, their population peaked at around, I think it was 33,000 in the low 1900, like 1990s. Wow. Wow. Yeah, but but most if you're looking at a good population, it's going to be high teens to low twenties. Okay, so do they 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 pull out of a bad winter fairly quickly? Like white-tailed deer, um, you know, say compared to like mule deer, elk can rebound quite quickly after a bad winter. They twin, you know, those sorts of things um, early early age, you know, to to start. Um, you know, breeding and that's, so how, how would the pronghorn compare in, in the, even if just compared to a whitetail and their ability to reproduce and, and rebound? Um, they'd actually be better than a whitetail. Really? So they, wow. Yeah. They, they pretty much twin every year. Like I did a, you know, study and we looked at the numbers and it was like 1.9 fawns per doe every year. Wow. So they're, they're actually wow. built to, to rebound quite quickly. Now, that said is a lot of times they're using like a predator swamping tactic. That's why they're having twins. So within that first, you know, week or three weeks of life, typically a doe will lose one of those fawns. But she okay. then she still raises one fawn. But then if you think about it, she's replacing any one animal that died has now been replaced by yep. you know, trying to get that fawn to survive. Wow. Huh. I didn't. Crazy. I didn't know that I would have, mm-hmm. I still would have put uh, whitetails at the top of the, of the, uh, the, the reproductive scale. So, wow, yeah. that's, that's, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. So they, they then, those fawns must be able, like be able to reproduce what, like a year and a half, two years? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say okay. so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then the thing too is, is that doe during gestation actually puts a lot of resources into those fawns compared to the other ungulates. So she's trying to definitely reproduce and put fawns on the ground that survive. Huh, wow. Mm. No, that's fascinating. Now, you, t- you touched a little bit, uh, kind of where, where I want to um, move into now, a little bit about migration. So, um, and this will lead into, you know, the fences and barriers and highways and stuff. But you, the, one, the one thing you talked about, so I wanted to talk about migration. So what, what is the general pattern of antelope? Like where, where do they move from and to? Uh, why do they move? So you, you, you talked about like this, if you get a bad snow winter, they want to move south, like I guess towards the U.S. border and maybe even into the U.S. Um, so that's, that's one trigger. Uh, moving south because of heavy snows, but do they have seasonal ranges like um, like mule deer? You know they're going to be low in the winter range or sheep, and then high in the mountains for the summer. Do they have a um, that type of migration, or or tell us the what, where, when, mm-hmm. and why of pronghorn movements on the landscape? Yeah, so you know from some of our studies, what we find is, and a lot of other populations as well, is pronghorn will be what we call partially migratory. So a portion of the population will migrate and then the other portion will be a resident that'll stay sort of year round in the same area. We found it's like 55% of the Alberta pronghorn are migratory and 45% were were, uh, resident. So what we see is in the spring, sort of end of March, early April is when migration starts off and they'll move from a north to a south sorry, from south to north in the province. And then in the fall, sort of end of, end of October, early November, they'll reverse it and they'll move south from their summer range. And they'll move anywhere from, you know, roughly I think what the average was is just under 200 kilometers in Alberta for, for a distance. Wow, okay. Yeah, and then we've found our, our animals are interconnected with Saskatchewan and Montana. We've got basically, we call it the Northern Sagebrush Step, where animals are moving back and forth between all three jurisdictions. Okay. Hmm. So you could, you could have a buck in the fall that actually is maybe traveling back and forth between Northern Montana and Southern Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had two collared does that we call are just in Alberta, North of the Montana border. And they spent basically the summer bouncing back and forth across the border. Huh. Yeah. And then we had one, there's always one unique individual that goes against the norm. And after our first year of collaring in the spring, instead, when everyone else was, the migratory animals were moving north, she did sort of a little bit into Saskatchewan and then moved south into Montana and stayed there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. But then I'll share one of the stories we've got is, so we call her this doe, we call her P3. She was basically number three of the capture animals. So we call it her south of many berries, just north of the Montana border in December of 2003. And then she moved just a little bit north after capturing and spent the winter there. And then in March, she decided she was going to do her migration. So she moved north, headed across, crossed Highway 1, East, uh, east of Medicine Hat, continued up through CFB Suffield, continued north, went to Malknan, Saskatchewan. So she traveled 445 kilometers in three weeks in her north <laughs> migration. And that included wow. spending three days moving back and forth 
along the highway, highway one along the fence before she actually was able to run across the four lanes of traffic, two, two sets of fences and a set of railway tracks. And that animal actually kind of came back into Alberta to fawn and we're not sure if she actually had her fawns and they survived or if she lost them, but then she ended up moving back into Saskatchewan for the summer and then moved down to um, CFB Suffield. And that's where she ended up dropping her collar in the December. So over the 50, I think it was 50 or 52 weeks, she had her collar and she traveled over 800 kilometers in that time frame. And that's sort of the, the North American record for the longest distance traveled within a year. Holy. Yeah. And this is, this is what we know. She traveled across 13 major highways, did three major river crossings, and I'm guessing crossed over a thousand fences during that year. Wow. Holy. Yeah. Now, would, wouldn't that be amazing if that was one of those animals that had, had the GoPro, like they, like on the collar mm-hmm. that they've had on the caribou, that would have been quite yeah. the, that would have been quite yeah. the adventure. Holy. And then just think about it. When she was doing that spring migration, she's in her last trimester of pregnancy. So she's carrying twins as she's doing that. And doing that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think she was doing all of that traveling alone? Uh, No, I'm I'm guessing she was with other animals. Okay. Um, We never got any observations when they were moving them. To be quite honest, we didn't even know they were going to do that. It was like, March came and then all of a sudden half of our study animals disappeared off the face of the earth. We had no idea where they were. And the only reason that we found them is because there was an oil and gas well checker in Saskatchewan near Malkin that was driving out checking wells and this pronghorn walked across in front of him on the road wearing a collar. And he phoned Fish and Wildlife to say, hey, I just seen this pronghorn with a collar. And then it kind of eventually made its way down through the grapevine to us. And then that's when we got up in the plane and started flying basically southern Alberta looking for animals. And we're finding them all over the place. Like they'd moved from that many bears area up into Suffield and then sort of fawned in that area. Wow. Huh. That's, that's quite, that's quite the movement. Um, Mm -hmm. Man. Now. A, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the the percentage. Maybe just say that again. The percentage of them that migrate and the percentage that stay resident was it fifty five were migratory? Yeah, fifty five percent were migratory, and then it would be forty five would be resident. So, are are the because there's sort of a similar phenomenon with waterfowl, right? Like if they you know in Calgary, they they there's a there's a large flocks of waterfowl hang out by the outlet on the Bow River of the uh, of the effluent treatment treatment plant, right? Because there's no ice, there's water, there's stuff growing in it. Um, there's no reason reason to fly. Do you think that percentage, are they staying resident somewhere because they've got access to like residual crop food, um, be it pulse crops, grains, like, you know, like whatever that's like, that's human? driven uh where historically maybe they all would have been migratory or or what what do you know about those differences yeah so we know there's two things so part of the resident animals they include animals that are on cropland year round so they're out in those agricultural areas so those animals they never migrated Um, life's good but yeah life well it is good until winter comes 
right? Because mm. then all the crops have been harvested and they're just, you know, making the existence living. Because we find there's, they stay there resident, but the animals in the cropland, they're sort of like sink habitats. They produce well, but their population growth is very slow in those areas, right? So, because, yeah, I mean, it's great during the spring and the summer, but then as soon as crops get harvested, they have a higher mortality over the wintertime. And then there's also residents in the native prairie that don't move as well. Um, I think those ones are making an existence off of, you know, native vegetation, sagebrush, probably in winter foraging. I don't know if it's because um, of fence density or road density that they've decided to just, you know, try eke out a living over the wintertime. And most of the times they can versus those that continue to migrate. Okay. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting that, yeah, I just, just couldn't help but think, you know, that, um, you know, that, that the human alteration in the prairie provinces, cause agriculture maybe is, has got them behaving very differently than, you know, what they might've historically when, you know, pre, pre-European settlement sort of thing. What, what would be the primary crops that they would zero in on? Like what would be like whitetails, you know, in in the Midwest, they like the corn crops, right? And they grow those gigantic bucks in in mm-hmm. Iowa and in places like that. And in, in the corn crops, what would it be in Alberta for for antelope? Yeah, I think it's going to be something like you know alfalfa or winter wheat or some of the lentils okay. like chickpeas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then any of the sort of weeds, what what are considered weeds or what are forbs, they'd forage on them as well. Okay. <clears throat> Do they ever do they ever cause like the egg operators grief? Like we know elk and deer and stuff can can really wreak havoc, especially on on hay crop. Yeah, no, for the most part they don't. Yeah, okay. they're 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 not as bad as elk or deer. And part of the elk or deer too is then they get into the stack feed, right? Your silage yeah. and your stuff, whereas this pronghorn won't. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's good for them. Mm-hmm. They're, keep, they're keeping a good reputation. They're staying out of the urban areas, and they're yeah. and, and they're yeah. they don't they haven't got the 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 ag operators mad at them. So <laughs> that's cool. Now, I know you've done quite a bit of research and published research on sort of um, the the effects and responses to linear features, roads, rails, uh, fences, and stuff on the landscape. Mm-hmm. So maybe tell us about those um you know what are barriers what have you been seeing uh researching um i've i've seen some of the collar data for mule deer that they're doing studies on in the uh, south central part of british columbia like over in the okanagan area and there's these collared mule deer that are literally moving east to west and they're stopping turning around going east, stopping, turning around, going west, stopping, going east, and there's literally stopping at highways. They run north-south. They will not cross the highways. And they're living in this this island between two two highways. And um, yeah, I, you know, I think anybody that knows wildlife and follows conservation from caribou to, you know, whatever, we know that those linear features are are getting to be a pretty big deal for a lot of species. So what's, mm-hmm. what's the story with them for, for pronghorn? Yeah. So certainly for pronghorn, linear features um, really impact what they can do and where they can go. 
So I gave you that example of P3 spending three days along the south side of Highway 1 before she could actually get across. So we're hoping at one point at some time is, you know, mitigate that migration and get her on her way quicker by hopefully maybe getting an overpass built at some point for across Highway 1 because, I mean, it's it's going to eventually, I think, impact their ability. And I've seen herds in, in the springtime of, you know, 200 all piled up on the south side of that highway waiting to wow. get across um, to continue the migration north. And the other big factor for pronghorn are fences. I mean, no one really sees fence for the impediment they are. Like if you drive down the highway, you don't even pay attention to the fence. But for pronghorn, it's a major barrier to movement, especially if that bottom wire is too low. And it's because they've, they evolved on the prairie. So it's behaviorally, they never had to deal with anything that had a, you know, a vertical height to it. You know, the tallest yeah, they thing weren't would be sagebrush. So wind they never falls really, and blow down in the forest and that sort of stuff. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. So they never really learned to jump. I mean, I've, we've captured a few individuals here and there on our cameras, jumping fences. It tended to be a, this buck that would do it, but I'm guessing 99.9% .9 of the pronghorn are trying to crawl under fences. And the other part of that is I think it's just the way their anatomy is, the way they're built. So the bones in their lower leg would be about the size of your index finger. So they're very, very small. So it must, you know, it must be hard for them to jump and then land on that, those bones in their feet. And I kind of, I always use the anatomy of get a pair of your wife's high stiletto shoes, put them on, and then try to jump three feet and see how, when you land, how that feels on your feet. Right. Because it must be, you know, similar to how it, how it is for pronghorn. So they crawl under fences. Um, so if the bottom wire is too low, that fence is now a barrier. And we're kind of finding it's, you know, it's 18 inches is sort of the minimum that they want for them to be able to crawl underneath easier. I mean, they'll go under, under, under lower fences. Like I've seen animals that are stressed, they'll go under 12 inches. But when it's barbed wire, it tends to also strip all the hair off their back. I mean, I've got, you know, images of puffs of hair of when animals are crossing under a barbed wire fence, stripping off their back. And then that was sort of led us to why I even started the fence work is when we did our first year of collaring in 2003, we had the capture crew take pictures of animals. And, he, you know, we got the cameras back and we were looking at them and we had this one animal where all basically most of the hair off her neck and back was totally gone. And the skin was like black leather. It was almost like it had been frostbitten. And then we started asking, like, what's causing that? And that's where we came to the conclusion. It's fences. Holy so we've done, we did some mapping exercise in, in GIS and using imagery uh, for, I think it was 63, 630 townships in that sort of southeast part of the province. And we mapped over 67,000 kilometers of fences. So if you put each of those fences like end to end, you could wrap around the earth one and a half times. Holy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so they they basically almost always on almost a daily basis are trying to find a place to cross on a fence. Wow. Now we've seen, or I've seen, um, like some of the work that's come out of the states, like I think Wyoming, where they've mapped the Great Mule Deer Migration Corridor, and it's like it it's a corridor. It's not this random, like you know see you down there in the winter range, you know, yep. type thing. It's like they're using a, a you know, a historic route. Are, are the pronghorn moving around on their landscape, especially like from winter 
to summer ranges and north to south, are they very, very like habitual to like a corridor or are they more sort of moving randomly across the landscape? And I'm kind of thinking about, you know, maybe you can segue into that, like identifying places, highway crossings, fence crossings. Yeah. So totally different than the mule deer. Like those mule deer, you can stack individual animals, movement paths on top of each other almost. The, the, so the they, GPS caller data. The caller yeah. data. Yeah. yeah. They have high fidelity to those movement routes. Pronghorn, not so much. Yeah. They have a lot more flexibility. And I mean, there's been some, det- some talk within sort of the, the pronghorn world about whether they're migrators or more nomads. That they'll, you know, they'll move around a little bit with more plasticity than than the pronghorn, and we and we saw that like we had um, when we had four animals that did that north migration along with P3, four of them crossed at the same sort of general area along Highway Three east of Medicine Hat, and then we had another animal that crossed to the west side of Medicine Hat. Some of them went as far as Suffield and then stopped there. This P3 went all the way in, into Saskatchewan. So we have general what we call migratory corridors or pathways but there's a lot of flexibility in there okay so that that ups the challenge of identifying you know like if you wanted to move towards like a highway crossing um the ones that they're building down on the states for mule deer it seems kind of like no-brainers right like it's like Mm -hmm. they just have the gps and it's data and it's like okay this is where the crossing's gonna go like plus or minus uh you know, maybe half a mile either way or whatever. But uh, so that that must make it a challenge for especially the highway stuff, because, you know, more and more and more like we see more and more work going on in Western Canada with building overpass, underpass type structures on highways. So that's going to be a challenge for Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. So we we just um, wrapped up a project. We call it Pronghorn Crossing, where we're actually using citizen science. So people from the general public, and we had an app developed for your phone, um, and we were kind of running it from Brooks all the way through to Swift Current in Saskatchewan, and we were just having people record where they were seeing pronghorn along Highway 1 to get that sort of fine scale of where are they sort of piling up along the highway. And we've sort of taken that and then did our analysis on it and sort of identified, you know, potential sites where an overpass could go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, I've just actually come back from a conference that was corridors, connectivity, and crossing structures. Oh, wow. I had a lot of people from the states there, you know, talking about the work they're doing and how many underpasses and overpasses that they're putting in to keep migration and connectivity going. And I think we're starting to catch up now in Canada. Yeah, so slowly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, I don't know if you've seen that film from, I think it's the Department of Transportation in Nevada. Um, where they did sort of a story on their collision problems with deer and, and building those uh, like just beautiful structures too, like mm-hmm. architecturally they're designed, they fit into the desert. Like they're just these, these, they got so much money to, to do those sorts of things. But I remember, I remember one statistic, uh, where they said, as soon as you have five animals that are hit on a same stretch of highway, I think within a five mile stretch of a highway, five animals, it's more expensive to not put a crossing in than it is to put a crossing in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the yeah, economic the- losses of, and, and it was like five animals in a five mile stretch kind of thing. And it was way lower than 
than what I would have would have imagined. So, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's that's the issue, right? And then it's called also the issue for pronghorn because part of our analysis, we actually had animal vehicle collision data from the transportation department in Alberta and RCMP in Saskatchewan. But that data is actually heavily skewed towards mule deer or deer in general because they tend mm. to get hit on the road and then they get picked up by the cleanup crews. So they get documented. But what you don't see is the pronghorn showing up as much in that data. And I think it's because when they get hit, I mean, they're likely running across that highway or that road at 100 kilometers an hour. So their momentum actually carries them off the road and they die in the farmer's field or the ditch, right? So they don't get recorded. And when we first started our pronghorn work, we did a sort of a landowner survey of, you know, where are you seeing pronghorn in the cropland and in the native? And one of the questions we asked them is, do you think vehicle collisions are an issue? And every one of them basically said, no, I don't think it is. And then our first two or three mortalities we had when we did necropsies was from vehicle collisions. They had broken ribs, broken legs, but they were actually out in the farmer's field. And it's so they're kind of they're getting clipped, maybe in the back end or something. Yeah, or even when they get hit, it's not killing them because they've got so much adrenaline and so much um, speed behind them that it, you know that momentum carries them off the road. You know, they're okay. running twice as fast as a deer can run. Interesting, huh? Yeah, so that's so, where we've sort of seen a misalignment between animal vehicle collision data and where we typically see animal migrations that were, you know, were mapped based on our GPS collar data and where we were seeing animals uh, from the pronghorn crossing app data. Huh. Wow. Did you think, do you think antelope are the type of animal that they would figure out crossing structures like quite quickly and adapt to them? Um, like I know some species, like the work that was done in the Bow Valley, like it, it's not, they don't take to it too well. Uh, it takes, takes a while. Some species are very skeptical and others, you know, others aren't, but what, what do you think would be the success rate if, you know, you plunked one down in a general area, would they figure it out? Uh, depends what kind of the structure is. So their anti-predator strategy is visual. They want to be able to see what's around them. And the landscape so, so they're not going to the, take to underpasses they're not going to take to the underpasses okay. <laughs> no okay. like it's like <laughs> if we want to put an overpass in pronghorn will use it i mean i have colleagues in wyoming that you know the first one that was actually put in overpass for pronghorn along the path of the pronghorn when they were building that structure and had it fairly ready to go before it was actually finished pronghorn went across it they used it <laughs> But it's because their bottleneck pinched so much into that area. That's why they had to put that overpass in that, you know, they were driven to go down that area and then used it right away. Yeah. 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 So I think if you use like drift fences along with the crossing structure, you can sort of funnel the animals to it and then they'll, they'll use it. That's the, the video I saw of Nevada, they, for the mule deer, um, it, it's, it is literally like a funnel. So like the, the, the entrance of the overpass might be like a hundred yards wide where it's, you know, hits the edge of the highway and it'll narrow and then widen again, kind of like an hourglass, but they'll run fencing for like a couple of miles back out into the desert. And, yeah. and so generally like a, like this two or three mile swath, they'll, they'll scoop up the mule deer and slowly funnel them down and get them over top of that. Uh, that crossing structure. So, mm -hmm. but 
that's yeah. different when you got pri- so much private land, like in southern Alberta, right? To to run fences out into people's lands like that would be mm-hmm. another challenge. Yeah, yeah, and that's certainly going to be a challenge if you know, because I know like Alberta transportation, they won't put a crossing structure in unless the properties on both sides of that structure are you know protected in perpetuity, right? So yeah, so okay. there'll be you know there'll okay. have to be some discussions with landowners and whether it's easements or or purchasing property or mm. yeah yeah. So what type of work is ACA doing uh, with private landowners for for fencing? Do you have projects uh, that you're working with private landowners who who express an interest in having wildlife friend, friendly fences for for antelope and others like? What's what's going on in that that area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so almost I think it's like the first or second year we had collar data on um, Alberta Fishing Game Association. So the local you know sportsman club here in, in the province started a pronghorn antelope migration project, and that's exactly what they're doing. We've partnered with them, so they purchase smooth wire, uh, double stranded, and then they'll go and work with ranchers who are interested, and then they put the smooth wire up at 18 inches, which is the height we're finding is is very uh, is what pronghorn want, and then um, remove any of the excess wire or respace wire. But yeah, they bring out their volunteers on the weekend. They come out, they staple up the wire, so the the landowner gets you know the wire for free and gets the labor for free. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and we've done yeah, think, that's something like a... over 500 kilometers of fencing since the project okay. started. Wow. Yeah. All, all through volunteers. And then all through volunteers, yeah. And does yeah. does then ACA paying for materials? Uh it, well AFGA actually does their own sort of fundraising. Oh, okay. Um, and they get the that's, the money for it and they purchase that's the materials. The Alberta Fish and Game Association, the Game Provincial Association. Association. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I think they do put in like ACA does have a granting wing, so they do put in for that and get some money through ACA. And then typically what a weekend will entail is ACA staff and AFGA staff will go out on the thursday friday and string up all of the smooth wire and then the volunteers come down and spend the weekend the saturday sunday uh stapling it up at the 18 inches and then if need be on the monday the aca staff and the one afga member will do sort of like a last minute cleanup of the site Hmm, okay the old barbed wire needs rolling up and then they typically do you know three weekends sort of summer fall and they try getting anywhere from you know, eight to 10 miles of fencing done in a weekend. Wow. Now, what's your experience with the smooth wire, barbed wire debate for landowners? I, I know, you know, where where we live, you know, you hear the, you can't go with smooth wire, the cows will push against it. They know they're gonna, you know, um, they're gonna bust fences. There's, there's a, I don't know. I uh, like. I'm not a rancher myself. I don't know if that's just an old school mentality thing, or if it is because it's a real thing. And you know, what what's your experience there? I mean, if you're doing 500 kilometers, there must be a substantial number of landowners are okay with it, and they must be ranching operations. Some of those those kilometers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're basically all ranching. Every every okay. ranch. Every yeah. Every mile that we've put up has pretty much been on ranching communities or we've done some of our our own properties as well you know just to make them wildlife friendly but you know it's, it hasn't been an issue really with cows rubbing on it or pushing on it i mean it's it's basically the same design it's two strands interwoven it just doesn't have the barbs on it yeah. so i mean i've seen cows rubbing on barbed wire fence when they get itchy so pushing on smooth wires is no different 
I mean, we even captured some images of, of one cow chewing on a barbed wire fence. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't see it being an issue. Um, one of the things we do talk about is whether calves can get out or not when we put it up at 18 inches. And sort of the one of the things we tell tell the rancher is, yeah, a calf, you know, a calf might get out at 18 inches, but a calf sometimes gets out on your regular fence when it's 12 inches. But the difference being is when that calf gets out when it's 12 inches, it likely rolled under at a corner or something, and now it doesn't know how to get back in. So now the cow and the calf is separated. Whereas if you're at 18 inches and it gets out, you've got a whole fence line that's at 18 inches where it can likely get back under again. Yeah. Huh. Well, long as that, long as that pans out, you know, in the real world for the ranchers, then they generally are okay with, okay with it. So, oh, that's mm-hmm. that's good. Um, yeah, that, that'd be an interesting kind of, cause see for us here in Southern BC, it's, it, the bottom wire is an issue cause the smaller animals, elk calves and fawns, uh, they need to go under mm-hmm. and the top wire is the issue for hooking up like the bigger animals, like, you know, mm-hmm. they get, you've seen them, they get. Yep. They get hooked they by that back leg and then they're hanging there till, till they die. And, and, you know, that's where you'd want to have the high bottom wire and a smooth wire for the top. And that's where, you know, I have heard a tremendous amount of, of pushback from the ranching community about that smooth, because that's where the cow's going to come up and put his head and reach over and push and try to get that grass on the outside. And that's where all the pressure's going and if mm-hmm. they can bust that top wire or get a leg up on it or whatever, then like, then that's it. Then they'll, then they'll go out. And so there is kind of a battle between a wildlife friendly fence that has a, has a smooth top wire versus, you know, the perception that the barb is needed for, for keeping the cows in. So. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the, I know I've had some discussions exactly around that in terms of, can you put the double stranded smooth wire on top? For the fear of, you know, a lot of it's been more at the height than as opposed to just the wire itself. But I mean, one of the things ranchers can do is then electrify that top wire, get a portable electric and then charge it. Right. So if the cow goes up to that top wire that wants to reach over, it gets a little shock. It then knows not to go up to that fence again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the other part of the, the smooth wire on the bottom at 18 inches, one of the things we're finding is, is deer have a preference to crawl under fences as well. I'm not just talking fawns. I'm talking, you know, the does and even some of the bucks if they're not stressed. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense. There's an energetic cost for a deer of jumping over a fence and there's also the, the risk of getting caught up. So if the yeah. bottom wire is high enough, they'll, they'll crawl underneath. Yeah. No, I've definitely seen lots of that too because the same thing, they got the little the little tufts of hair always on the on the bottom barbs. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe let's, I want to switch gears a little bit here and get a little bit of time in on this a little bit. Is your thoughts on pronghorn as a species that's a game animal that's hunted? Um, What are some of the principles of, you know, even differences between, say, whitetail and mule deer uh, versus antelope in in the management of them as a game species, like what are what are some of the main drivers or considerations that would make make them different? 
Yeah, I don't know if, if I would say makes them different. I think they're somewhat treated the same. I mean, some of the big differences is pronghorn, like especially in Alberta, um, are always on draw, right? So you have to put in okay. for it. And they tend to be shorter seasons, right? So I think it's like a week-long season for the north in, in Alberta, and then in the south, it's a week-long season, which is tip, not as typical in your deer, right? Like you can have season opens November, and you get all, all the month to go out and harvest your deer. So it's very short. And then typically for pronghorn hunting is, you know, within that first day or two, that's when most of the bucks are harvested. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, if you do your right scouting and uh, I mean, I've, people have told me that, you know, once they get drawn for a pronghorn, um, when the season's about to open, they'll go down on the weekend and scout. And then that Sunday night, they'll basically pick their buck and then sleep on them. They'll stay in their truck and watching that buck and then just sleep there and then get up in the morning and go out and you know try to harvest them because pronghorn a little bit different than deer in terms of they just they're active mostly during the day they're diurnal so they're not crepuscular they're not um uh, nocturnal they're active pretty much during the day so a lot of times if you can find your buck in the evening and he doesn't get disturbed when he beds down he'll be there in the morning or in the same general area in the morning oh well kind of like kind of like mountain sheep yeah yeah. Huh. I mean, they will do a little movement overnight if they're pushed or if there's a snowstorm. And we've picked them up at all kinds of hours with our cameras, but, you know, 80% of their movement is during the day, which makes sense. It's a visual detection of predators, right? So Yeah, exactly. Moving around yeah, during the day and bed down you know, at night. The, the antelope's eyes and the way they're structured on their skull is very similar to a mountain sheep and a mountain goat. Um, I think even their, their pupils are very, very s similar and they got those, you know, they're a little bit bulged. They're a little bit to mm -hmm. the side, which I understand in sheep and mountain goats gives them in that open habitat, gives them a better, like not 360 degrees around, but a pretty darn good peripheral, mm -hmm. peripheral view. Yeah. And, and so the same thing, those animals tend to bed down at nighttime and like you see a big belly and. You know, you get up in the morning and he's still laying on his same, you know, little crag, you know, that, that he was at 10 o'clock the night before. So, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause their, their vision is, is tremendous. They can see movement a, a mile away and for a small animal, like they're only, you know, a female pronghorn is a hundred pounds and a male is 120 and they stand roughly three feet. Their diameter of their eyes is actually about the same as a horse's. So they actually wow. have large eyes for that wow. visual detection. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Now, I know in places, and, and I'm just wondering if this is because sort of, of an overpopulation thing, like in Wyoming, um, you know, very high densities. I don't know if they still do it or not, but they had like, they had your doe tags and your buck tags. And it's like, I, I just remember years ago reading something where, like if you're going to go hunt like an over-the-counter tag it's like you have to get your doe tag first and you can't buy your buck tag until you've got a doe tag canceled or two doe tags canceled because they were managing that that they wanted two does taken for every buck so a hunter could get three tags but he has to fill at least i think it was like at least one of the doe tags before you could could get your buck tag now is that just a population control thing via hunting or is that something that's very important for a pronghorn that would be different than say deer? 
Yeah, so that's just a, a population uh, management tool, right, to control okay. it. Because, like, Wyoming has ha- almost half the North American population of pronghorn. Yeah. So, they, they, I mean, their densities are just tremendous compared to, you know, pretty much every other state. Now, that being said, um, so this past winter, I don't know if you guys have heard the stories or not, but they've oh, had some bad severe die-offs severe winter survived yeah severe die-offs like in some of the herds of pronghorn it's up to 80 percent of the herd died this past winter because of the conditions and mule deer weren't any better and i've even heard elk and you know some of the parts of the of wyoming weren't any better so they're -hmm. looking at i think they're shutting down some of their ungulate seasons no mule deer no pronghorn seasons this coming hunting season just because of the severe winter and the major die-offs they've had yeah that uh yeah thank goodness that that weather pattern didn't come to to southern saskatchewan southern uh, alberta but uh mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i think wasn't it wasn't it that it was like winter just kept coming like late into in in beginning of april and stuff like it was just continuous snowstorms and blizzards and snow piling up and at that time of the year where the animals should have been getting at like fresh green stuff they were still getting buried under under snow if that's yeah yeah if i recall that's what was going on down there yeah yeah i think it came early i think they had some heavy snow in in november and then i think i read this one story where they had a bit of rain after that which then crusted over that snow and then like you said then they had snow falls after that so there's basically no forage that the animals could get to and they basically were just waiting to die yeah every once in a while you hear these stories about the prairie hailstorms and and killing animals and stuff is that you know is that that's sort of like way more rare than it than it seems to be when we hear stories in the news like have you ever seen anything like that in alberta where like they've like dead animals laying all over the place from from a hailstorm i've heard the same stories i've never witnessed it okay so yeah so i'm not sure if it does happen or not if it does, it's got to be like pretty small pretty little areas, little very localized. Okay, well, thank, thank I mean, goodness for that. You, you can kind of think about it because my wife's almost brand new car last summer got hit by a hailstorm, and it dented the whole car. Like basically, she got a brand new shell for her car. There's that much hail damage caused, and it was only in like a half hour downpour. Wow. I mean, and then in the town just north of where she works, Pitcher Butte, there was hail was breaking windows and damaging the siding on people's houses. Jeez. Maybe that's so. another reason where they develop the speed. You know, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll run this. They see the black stormy skies and they're like, run like hell. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Um, do, do you know offhand, like ballparkish, how many antelope are harvested every year in Alberta? Yeah, no, I don't have those numbers. Yeah, yeah. Like Fish this, and Wildlife does the management. Do you think it would stuff. be like in the hundreds or thousands? <sighs> or would you be guessing either way? I would be totally guessing, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, that would be, that would be a pretty, pretty cool hunt. But I, from my understand, a few people that I know, like it's a uh, minimum eight, eight years or so to get, get drawn in Alberta. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Eight, eight to ten years, and I think I think I, when I looked at the numbers, it was like the third most applied for tag in the province. Wow! Wow! Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's becoming one of those almost. It's going to be a once in a lifetime hunt. Yeah, yeah. The more yeah. the more popular hunting gets. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. Is is there anything about pronghorn ecology, biology, management in Alberta that you think we missed that would be kind of an important thing, kind of to touch on? What what do you what do you what do you have on the go? Like some some projects forward-looking stuff yeah so we don't really have anything on the go we've been having some discussions with alberta fish and wildlife about you know potentially putting more collars back on animals but mm -hmm. having the same the collar on the same animal for multiple years because that was one of the if you want to call it a shortfall of our original study is the collars were stored on board so they collected locations every four hours stored the information on the collar and then after 50 to 52 weeks the collar dropped off we would download the data and then redeploy the collar, but on a different animal. So that's one of the things we want to look at is is putting animals, putting collars on the same animal over multiple years and seeing if each animal is doing that same migration every year. Because like the oh. example of P3, where we collared her in December of 2003 and where she dropped her collar December 2004, she's about 200 kilometers away. So she didn't cross Highway 1 again and move south. So was that just... She hadn't done it yet, but she would do it later on. Or, um, or is it a phenomenon where you know when they make those huge movements, it's so energetically costly that they don't do it from year to year? And then our landscape yeah. is changing, right? Like we've got urban development, urban sprawl, industrialization, and now we've got sort of green energy coming um, on the forefront, and that's going to change the landscape. Are these animals going to be able to continue moving in such a changing landscape? Is has there been any kind of movement in the prairie provinces for ag operators going to <clears throat> the big high fences? Well, we have quite a few of those in areas in southeastern BC, um, just because farmers were tired of elk depredation on their crops. And there was a big federal provincial grant, you know, like about 20 years ago, and they got these 12 foot column elk fences. Um, and there's no getting, you know, mm past those things are you is there anything like that on the prairie provinces or are they just your normal four foot yeah like a lot of crop land will actually not even be fenced or if it is fenced it's just a regular you know four strand barbed wire fence because sometimes what the landowner will do is after he harvests his crop is he'll turn cattle out to graze on stubble um, so yeah so we haven't seen those fences those kind of fences are for here is more associated with um solar uh farms right putting in big solar panels and for those they'll you know they'll fence off the whole perimeter of the solar farm with an eight foot fence okay and those installations tend to be pretty large in order to generate the power they need so you could yeah. end up with a mile or more of of high fencing possibly yeah more yeah like there's one i think being reviewed right now that's sort of just outside of one of the migration corridors that we've mapped that's seven sections in size so like 18 square kilometers um in size solar farm that could have eight foot fence pretty much all around it there's a few roads that go through that that won't get fenced so that you know people can still use the county road and then one of the researchers out of wyoming when he looked at a small one i think it wasn't more than five square kilometers. He found not only is the, the footprint, you lost that habitat. And a lot of times it's on cropland, but then there's also this 40% indirect habitat loss where animals weren't using that habitat as much as they used to in the past. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> now, 
going back to the caller thing, don't they have the GPS callers now where they bounce the signal off a satellite and you can just pick up the locations it, they're getting logged on a by a base station you can log in every day and see where your animal is kind of kind of thing is that where you'd like to move towards yeah yeah exactly that's sort of the the new technology is a satellite callers where yeah you can just program it and it'll send every day your locations where that animal is and, kind of and joke is, that it's taking the field biologist and making them a desktop biologist. You know, I've I've heard that right. one a few times. Yeah, yeah especially so you from, don't have to go out in the field to find your animal. You just sit at your desk. Especially from the from the uh, the gray the gray beard wildlife biologist, right? It's like yeah, yeah. Get out in the field. That's where you learn mm. wildlife science, not in the office. Oh, cool! Wow, and that's the this other technology, is um, like you mentioned, is the camera. Some of these, you know, you can get your satellite com- camera callers that have a built-in camera so you can actually see the, what the, the gopro doing. Yeah, yeah i've seen like those on caribou mm-hmm. and they tried it on they've done a couple studies where they've tried it on grizzly bears they did the one in alaska because they wanted to see what the bears were eating like as far as um you know caribou calves moose calves those those sorts of things apparently it's pretty hard for the scientists to figure out what the bears are doing because it's just like it's chaos and you just see like a leg whip by or something like that and you're like well what the hell was that was that a moose or a caribou i don't know you can't tell um yeah. and then uh, a good friend of ours he's been on the show several times dr clayton lamb um they tried it on grizzly bears in northeastern bc and uh around one of the caribou um, maternal penning projects the caribou recovery areas Yep. And he basically said, no, nah, it didn't, didn't work. Um, I don't know exactly why, whether like the cameras didn't, didn't work or they couldn't see what the bears were up to or whatever, but that was kind of a, a bust on that, that project. They didn't get any data off of it, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's just because of the size of the bear's head and when it's eating, it's heads pointing down and it's blocking the view of the camera. Yeah, I think I think I saw bits and parts of maybe they might have been still pictures of one of the GoPros of the Alaskan brown bears. And it's like, yeah, I don't know how anybody would figure out what was going on in that picture. Because, yeah. yeah, you're you're basically looking at something. It's from underneath their chin, mm-hmm. you know, and they're killing something with their mouth. And it's not the best, the best angle. So, yeah, um, but that how that would be kind of neat to see, you know, animals pronghorn going under fences or over fences that'd be kind of cool curtis what were you going to say yeah i was sorry i was i'm just kind of going a little off to how are um how are pronghorn in regards to cwd are they fairly resistant to Mm. chronic wasting disease yeah so so far actually hasn't been documented in pronghorn cwd really in the wild that's yeah okay i read one paper where it kind of suggested that they were genetically susceptible to CWD, mm-hmm. um, but there's been no field documentation of pronghorn um, getting CWD. And there's been no, I don't think anyone's even tried it, field trialed it, like in a lab setting sort of thing, you know, when they were testing it with deer and elk and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. No one's, I don't think, even done it with, for, for pronghorn. So, so far, so we're lucky. Because hmm. you would figure with, you know, the with deer, like with our mule deer in Saskatchewan and in Alberta, and then overlap with pronghorn, if you were going to be susceptible, you would have detected it by now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's um. I mean, that's that's good news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, you know, that's 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 amazing. So, 
Um, I know the whitetails, like they, they have that parasite that can get into the brain of moose, which is causing some problems where whitetails are expanding into, into more moose range. So um, hopefully there's nothing like that where more whitetails are coming in contact. Because I, I, would, I would almost think that whitetails and, and pronghorn were probably not relative neighbors like historically, like just, I don't think we had the numbers of whitetails in the North American continent until people started developing in agriculture and roads and railways. Mm -hmm. So yep. I would Forestry. almost suspect that they evolved kind of isolated from each other. And ho mm -hmm. hopefully we probably would have seen it by now. Obviously they've been, been together for, for quite a few centuries, but yeah. Well, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, the pronghorn certainly would more have been, I think, the mule deer and the bison. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Very cool. Well, this has been exciting for us. This is the first time we've ever dove into the world of uh, pronghorn and learned about them. Uh, it's one of the things that's so amazing about Canada and the diversity of what, what we have here for for wildlife, um, you know, even big, big and small, it's, um, it's cool to learn about them. I, I think this was a, was a great educational, great educational episode. So I really appreciate you imparting all your knowledge on us. Yeah, no, it's, it's been great. I'm, I'm glad you guys invited me on. No, it's been, been great. And, uh, yeah, maybe your, your colleague there, Doug, Doug Manzer, he's invited us over to, uh, his neck of the wood, which is not too far away in the crow's nest pass there to do, um, some tours of some farm ranch lands that ACA is working mm -hmm. with and some upland game bird, um, habitat enhancement stuff. And, and so we might get over there early this summer to do that. And, and, uh, so maybe yeah. we'll, we'll have a chance, uh, to connect with you and. No, for sure. Learn, Tack an extra day on there and we'll go for a pronghorn drive. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah that yeah. would be that yeah. would be ton of ton of fun. So cool. Well, thank you very much. Um Paul, it was uh it was great. Yeah, thank you too again for having me on. It's, yeah, it's been good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it was a, a lot of fun and um maybe you'll be able to get that uh, pronghorn edition Toyota Tacoma truck when it when it comes out, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, my kid says I drive like a granny, so maybe it's not for me. <laughs> well, I think I think what he would be is it'd be like a, a fence in, in in it with the wire, and then all the antelope would be going underneath of it. So that when the truck was driving, it would look like all the antelope are going underneath <laughs> that bottom wire, and a little little, uh, uh, little promo on the side. Yeah, yeah eighteen no, exactly. inches high or go home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks again, Curtis. Take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Shoot them a line. Let them know. I think they're they're backed up a couple years now on our uh, on all of our wraps. So say, hey, we want to start seeing some of these wraps the guys over at the Hunter Conservationist have been talking about for the last year and a bit, two years almost. So um, yeah, while you're at it, let them know that uh, you appreciate them supporting us and what we do here and having great conversations and learning lots of cool stuff about 
all sorts of things, science and conservation and hunting related, especially today. I really enjoyed this one. This was really cool. I like pronghorn. Yep. yep. No, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was great. So is, is speed goat, like, is that an okay term? You know, like, you know, if you were, if you were to talk to Doug on upland game birds and call them like chickens, road chickens or, or mm-hmm. fool hens or something Thund- like that, it would be like thunder blasphemy. chickens for turkeys. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that a, is that an accepted term in the biology world to call the pronghorn speed goats? Oh yeah. Yeah. They get called speed goats quite a bit. One of the things we're working against is calling them antelope because technically they're not mm. actually even related to the antelope of Africa. Yes. What the name kind of comes from is because when, you know, Lewis and Clark and everyone was sort of moving out West and exploring, they seen these creatures, pronghorn, and they we reminded them of the antelope of Africa. So that's where the name comes, comes from. But yeah, yeah, we're trying to change the nomenclature and get people calling them pronghorn. Pronghorn. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah or speed that, ghost or prairie ghost. I think the similar thing happened with Buffalo where it's the North American bison and Buffalo are like the the buffalo of like india and southeast asia and stuff they got like the long mm-hmm. horns like those are the true buffalo and, the, and our north american bison is not a buffalo it is a bison that's how i understood it so hmm. yeah bison and pronghorn yeah yeah cool well i love the work that you guys do at the alberta conservation association it is top shelf world-class work that that you guys do there i i love the fact that we've connected with you and and you guys are willing to come on the show and and uh and give us a bit of your time and your knowledge um do great work absolutely great work and uh you know on behalf of all hunter conservationists across canada and um thanks for everything you do at uh aca um portion of your funding comes from hunter dollars and so that's that's kind of cool um you know as well as other other places but that that is uh an important part and aca definitely puts back uh into the resource that hunters benefit from as well and one of the plugs i'll give for aca is even though i am not a resident of alberta i get the ACA magazine uh, when it comes out. So if you're into, it is a great magazine. I love it. Um, it's I, I put it right up there with uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada's um, Conservator magazine. Like it's it's a really good magazine. So go onto the website and I think if if you can still, I think anybody can get themselves onto the mailing list anywhere in Canada and get the magazine and just see the great things that that go on in Alberta with uh, with your guys's organization. So. Yeah, yeah, no, you definitely can still sign up for the magazine, and I think now they're sending it out electronically as a PDF. So, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, okay, yeah, I get the I get the hard copy still. I love it. So, yeah, check that out, folks, and um, yeah, follow along what's going on uh, in Alberta. Paul, thanks very much, and uh, hey, everybody, we'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.